Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. Every 35 minutes or so, Solar Zero installs a new residential solar system. I'm assuming it's all residential. We'll come to that, Matt. Um, that's quite a few. And it has a plan to invest a billion dollars in new solar and battery systems over the next decade. Uh, and it's already chalked up more than 12,000 installations and made headlines this time last year when it was acquired by BlackRock, one of the world's largest investors. In September just gone, the government-owned New Zealand Green Investment Finance invested $80 million along with two other funds and effectively, I think it was a, a climate bond. Again, we'll come back to that. In other words, Solar Zero is on the march. The 35-year dream of scientist Andrew Booth is now mainstream. So how does it work? Why is it attracting so much capital? And how does it reconcile being owned by one of the world's largest coal and fossil fuel investors? And Matt's smiling because there are probably things he can and can't say in answer to that question. Well, let's deal with that first. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me, Vincent. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show and congratulations on, uh, you know, such an achievement for Solar Zero. Yeah, thank you. It's As we'll discuss, it's been a massive journey and uh, it's only just starting. Yeah, yeah, great. All right, well, let's just talk about BlackRock. I mean, there are probably things that uh, as an official employee you can and can't say, but, you know, it's an interesting business. It has something like $9 trillion. It's trillion with a T. You know, I can't even imagine a million. A trillion is quite a lot um, in assets under management and it's very diversified, right? So it's across all sorts of crazy sectors, including... Fossil fuels, been a strong investor in coal. Um, it has money in guns. Uh, it has a. It's just recently had a presence in China uh, and has been accused of being involved in human rights violations in Western China. So, I guess the question is: You've got a Solar Zero with a really clear, quite noble mission around renewables, um, and you've got a an investor that stands accused of some of the things I've just mentioned. How do you reconcile that and has it made a difference for you? <laughs> That's a really tough question, but a fun one to start with, Vincent. Um, <laughs> look, I think from our perspective, our the fund that we sit in is the Global Renewable Power Fund. Um, it's a $5 billion fund and it is a deep green fund. So all of the investments that sit in our fund are, um, are involved in clean technology. So You've got our sister companies in Australia include the largest grid-scale battery, the Waratah battery in New South Wales. Um, We've got sister companies that are doing EV charges globally, um, that are installing solar and wind uh, up in Asia. Um, So the fund that we are part of uh, is is solely invested into um, renewables. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously BlackRock are the world's largest fund manager, and they invest in what their clients ask them to invest in. So my ability to comment beyond that is somewhat limited. Mm-hmm. What I would say is that the uh, innovation that they're bringing to the uh, climate infrastructure space is phenomenal. And you see that being manifested in their launching their New Zealand, uh, you know, the only country-focused fund uh, on the planet um, and they've launched that obviously you know a few months ago now. Yeah. And it's well recognised that in New Zealand we need to spend forty billion dollars between now and twenty thirty to electrify the economy. So them announcing that two billion dollar fund is you know, a small start to that. But 
we actually need a whole lot more Black Rocks, in my opinion, um, with dedicated funds, you know, focused on the energy transition, because we can't just rely on um, the Gen Taylors uh, and the previous ways of funding infrastructure growth to to get to those targets. Yeah, it, it's kind of um, reminds me a bit of uh, you know I used to like them before they became popular. Uh, you know, if we're going to mainstream sustainability, mainstream companies are going to be part of the scene, aren't they? And and so, you know, big organisations, big mainstream investors are now being brought into the renewables and the ESG space. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, I think it's a good thing. Um, you know, I worked as a, uh, a CFO for a listed business. Uh, over Met, to MetLife. Uh, Oceania, Oceania Healthcare. Yep. Yep. Uh, we did the IPO in 2017. And... It, it amazed me at that time how focused uh, the investment community was on our financial performance at that time. But even in the short space of 2017 to 2020, the questions we got from the investor set really started to broaden into ESG matters. Um, so that was great in terms of the, the mm. investment community, you know, realising that value is measured across a number of different dimensions um, you know, with the advent of integrated reporting, people are now focusing on you know, your contribution to your community, your people, your environment, you know, innovation, that broad set. And so now that businesses and investors are measuring that, that was a first step. But in my opinion, we're still not seeing the flow of capital into ESG investing, particularly in New Zealand. And that's why it's so great to see BlackRock announcing that fund um, because you know, I'm not seeing that level of capital. You know, being uh, all those funds being generated within New Zealand at scale, and that's yeah. what we need. Yeah, the scale thing is interesting. Larry Fink, the um, founder and chief executive um, of BlackRock, he he shocked people in 2020 by saying, actually, we're exiting non-sustainable, non-renewable investments, and the new criteria is. Mm. Uh, you know, and I was just reading on um, about the on Wikipedia. You know, the criticism of BlackRock is equal in the opposite direction. So, a couple of states have refused to do business with BlackRock because of their um, ESG stance. Yeah, I mean, because America's political spectrum is so um, sort of polarized, um, it is hard for for them to sort of you know play both sides of the political spectrum. Mm. So you're right. Um, sort of on you know the, the west coast, you know they're accused of you're know, not going far enough, and then other states are you know, mm. accused of um, being too ESG leaning. So, but I think we need leadership in this space, and you know we have as I said before in New Zealand, you know forty billion dollars to spend over between now and 2030, and we need people being innovative. Uh, in the capital market space, and I really applaud you know, BlackRock for announcing that fund, and I really hope that the New Zealand investment community get in behind it and yeah. we see more of it because we need it. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to come back to some of these investments in a minute, but let's go right back to basics and 101. That, like, so Solar Zero has a really interesting kind of offer to consumers, um, and it's mostly residential, right? You, you, do you operate in the commercial space? A little bit, space? Yep, yeah, yep, but okay. I would say 95% of what we do is in the residential space. Yeah, what's, it, that's brave, um, dealing with the public. Tell <laughs> us about what is the offer? How does, you know, how does that thing work? So I think I'll start with our mission because we are actually a mission-led business. So our purpose is to accelerate the transition, uh, energy transition in New Zealand, 
and, and it's a big and, and we underline it and we put it in bold and size 24 font, lower the cost of power bills for Kiwis. Um, you know, Andy Booth, our, our founder, had a vision, and this was supported by Sir Stephen Tyndall, of effectively democratising access to solar. Mm. You know, back in 2009, 2010, the cost of PV only for 10 panels was about $40,000. So it was firmly the domain of the wealthy. Uh, even today, 10 years on, you know, solar and batteries have come off 85% in price over that time, but you're still looking at twenty dollars to $25,000 to put a solar and battery system in. <coughs> so, on a typical New Zealand house correct. you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that we are most proud of is that we think, we, or we know, not think, we have democratised access to solar. So there's a thing called the deprivation index, which is almost like your school decile index, mm-hmm. but it's the opposite. So decile, you know, one is the rich end of town and decile 10 isn't. And we're flat across that deprivation index. So we have as many customers in South Auckland as we do in Central Auckland. And it, effectively, it's, it's amazing to see because yeah. we've allowed, you know, every Kiwi homeowner to go solar and battery and save money, you know, if they want to join the, the revolution. So that's one of the outcomes. What's the mechanism for them to get there? Yeah, so what we do is our model is effectively a subscription-based model. So we take away the upfront capital hurdle. Right. Um, and then we effectively turn your monthly power bill that you would normally pay with a generator, or gentailer rather, into a monthly bill uh, from us. Um, so you just swap one for the other, but we guarantee you will save money each and every year. And if you don't um, save money, we'll give you a credit. And right up front, if we get your power bill and we don't think we can save you money, then we'll say, we can't do that right now. Come back to us in a year's time. Mm-hmm. About 85% of Kiwis validate in. So 85% of customers, you know, we can save them money. Um, and with the rate that solar, you know, PV and batteries um, are reducing in, in price, you know, we think that we'll be able to do that for 100% of homes within 24 months. You lock people into a 20-year contract, is that right? Yeah, so the way it works is that we, um, you know, that, that investment's 20 to 25 grand, so we f- uh, fix the price of the energy for that period. So, you know, one side of the coin is you could say we're locking them in. The other way of looking at it is actually we're fixing your, uh, your energy bill yep. inflation-free for 20 years. So with the rate of inflation running at 5 to 7%, that is an absolutely great deal. So we've got customers that have been with us for three years now that were saving $220 in their first year that are now saving well over $400. Our average customer saves about $225 in their first year and about $20,000 in aggregate over the 20 years. Yeah. Uh, now, I have to confess, I'm in the middle of a sales pitch from uh, one of your <laughs> staff, Christina, with this incredible Irish accent. I think that's the, one of the reasons I just listen to her voice, actually. It's so, it's so <laughs> delightful to listen to It's a great pitch. Um, she talks about, uh, so I get the, you know, you've covered the capital costs of the equipment to go on the roof, yep. and uh, I understand that. You also pay this uh, thing called I'm not quite sure what it is, a renewable fee or a renewable yeah, bonus or something? Yeah, we call it a, a VPP credit. So it's a virtual power plant credit. So the way we make the whole thing stack up for us uh, is that we uh, use the 12,000 batteries to participate as a virtual power plant uh, in, in the grid. So last year, uh, we were the first uh, business globally to use residential batteries to participate in the reserves market. So that's sort of a capacity market. It's amazing that that, I mean, mean, it's great, but isn't it amazing that it's taken that long for 
yeah, for that and to actually happen. Well, yep. I mean, technology has moved incredibly fast, um, but you know, it's a highly regulated market. And uh, when you're participating in the electricity market, you've got to go through a lot of testing. So we've worked very mm-hmm. closely with the University of Auckland, Panasonic uh, and others to you know, complete that testing. And of course, there's changes in the, the code and the regulate, regulatory environment as well, which are required. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what we've been doing is working with the electricity authority, you know, TransPower, to you know, pilot a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd say New Zealand is, we're being very innovative from a sort of a technology uh, point of view. But we've Do you got mean lot- New Zealand or Solar Zero? Well, uh, there's not any other business doing what we're doing from a virtual power plant in New Zealand. Yeah. So we work, we're the, sort of the only industry participant doing it at the moment. Mm. But, you know, TransPower are really keen to uh, get on board and support us um, because at the moment, you know, the uh, eight of the 10 largest peaks and demand have all been in the last 12 months. And TransPower are nervous about, you know, winter peaks in the future. So they've been very supportive of us. Even this year um, with Ariake, we developed in the space of three months a winter peaking product to enable our batteries to respond to what's called a low residual notice. So when TransPower think that um, the generation capacity goes under 200 megawatts, um, they'll uh, issue a notice and we'll charge up our batteries and we'll participate. So just like a, um, just like Huntley or um, a, a gas Otahu, peaker plant, something, something like that, yeah. but we can respond in six seconds, whereas Huntley takes two or three hours and a yeah. peaker plant you know, is about 15 to 30 minutes. So we did that trial. We developed it in, uh, yeah, three months. Um, you know, we've been... Um, uh, using uh, our batteries to participate in that market in the last three or four months. Awesome. Um, and Great it's been, from a resilience point of view, right? You know, it really helps New Zealand build yeah. that kind of underlying capacity to address the peaks. Yeah. That um, issue around, uh, I will come back just to come back to that original question. So that payment that you make to your customers, is that you kind of passing on some of that, yeah. that revenue that you've yeah. earned? Yeah. So the, if you were uh, if you're a residential customer, you'll typically pay between twenty five and thirty cents a kilowatt hour for your energy. If you go and just do solar only, just put solar panels on your roof, you'll generally reduce your cost of energy to about twenty to twenty three cents, mm-hmm. depending on what your lines charges are. If you go in and just add a battery without connecting it to a virtual power plant your cost of energy will be exactly the same as PV only. You'll shift a little bit out of peak periods to off-peak mm-hmm. periods, but with us, your levelised cost of energy reduces to about 16, 17 cents because of what we can do with the batteries. Right. Um, and that sort of VPP credit is how we pass that on to our customers. Yeah. Does that VPP start to address the um, winter, low, uh, you know, what do they call it, a dry winter issue where the lakes are at a sort of nervously low level and they can't just be turned on to address um, peaks. Yeah, I mean, that's what we were uh, trialling with TransPower this year. So we put in uh, 30 megawatts um, across our 12,000 batteries uh, into that. So that adds another sort of, you know, if the low residual notice is 200 megawatts, you're getting another sort of 15%. At our rate of growth, we think that number will be about 50 megawatts by uh, next winter. 
And it's a 2024 winter, which I think Transpower were the most nervous about. Mm. Um, and particularly with some of the delays in generation coming online that we've seen recently, I think there is some nervousness around that for next year. Um, so we've developed a product um, that effectively can respond to those low residual notices and then we'll get dispatched um, when the real-time price hits $3,000 a megawatt hour. So we are... Uh, you know, a market participant, if you like. That's you know, amazing. we respond to real-time yeah. pricing signals. Yeah. That's wicked. The change, I suppose, from a technical point of view has been batteries, right? In the past, we've been able to generate renewable energy, but the the storage for when you need it is the issue. Is that right? So what, what have you done around batteries that's made the difference? Um, so I think for us, I mean, the best story that I can share with you is in February when Cyclone Gabriel hit, we had a third of our customers that lost grid power. Um, so um, it was about 33%, I think, they lost grid power in the North Island. And 97% of the time our customers were able to power through is if they didn't have a power cut. Yeah. And we had these great stories of our customers having their neighbours over to, you know, have chilled beers or hot coffees or what have you because their neighbours had lost power. So that was probably the turning point for our business and actually got the attention of uh, Megan Woods and others because they saw firsthand the tangible benefits mm. of having, a, you know, um, a stationary battery for a resilience point of view. You know, hitherto people were quite focused on the economics of the battery. Yes, and we're quite interested in what we could do to support the grid. But there's nothing like seeing the human effect of what we do to sort of bring it to the you know, front of uh, people's minds. Yeah. So what we've done in terms of the battery is um, we've worked really closely um, with Panasonic uh, to enable our batteries to participate in um, the various markets to offer those VPP credits. Uh -huh. um, and so we've developed the other reserves product, the winter peaking product, we're now working on uh, energy arbitrage as well because one thing that you're seeing in New Zealand is that the differences between the, uh, the peak and off-peak prices are becoming even more pronounced. Um, so we're able to offer our customers even more savings by effectively using the batteries to you know, uh, utilise those high prices and low prices. Huh. So at the moment... Um, do you have the... I'm just going to interrupt. Yeah, do you have the freedom to um, reintroduce power into the grid at any time or do you have to kind of wait for permission from the authority? No, so just like any other power. customer with a yeah, PV system on their roof, we can inject at any time. There's obviously, you need to get approval when you set up the system in the first place, uh -huh. a distributed generation approval. Um, but the, a traditional customer and the way we save our customers money without the arbitrage is as follows. It's quite simple. We charge the battery between one and four in the morning when there's sort of excess generation, you know, buzzing about. Um, and then when you get up in the morning, we will discharge the battery. So when you have your, you know, shower and your hot cup of coffee, we uh, deplete the battery. And then obviously the sun comes up, does its thing, powers your home. And then while, you know, you're at work or what have you, we charge the battery up again. You get home. We deploy the battery uh -huh. and it rinses and repeats. So what it means is, from a grid perspective, the grid only sees you from 1 to 4 in the morning and maybe a little bit at 9 p.m. Okay. at night. So it completely changes your profile. It's, so it's a much more fluid relationship. Than, it's, not a, it's not a binary. You know, It's not power just going into the grid. It's actually coming backwards and forwards yeah. in a really dynamic way. Yeah. I mean, the economics are such that you, you want to optimise your level of self-consumption. So in other markets like Australia, 
bigger was always better because they had massive feed-in tariffs. So in Australia, one of the ways they incentivised the uptake of solar was to give you 30 to 40 cents a kilowatt hour for exporting. And so lo and behold, people put panels on every surface they could on their house. But what's happened in the last two years is those uh, incentives have been unwound. So some people have gone from earning 30 to 40 cents a kilowatt hour to nothing. So in Australia, you've got this perverse outcome where 30 to 40% of houses have solar, but only a couple of percent have a battery. So they're in a race to put batteries to, you know, um, sort out their solar That's problem. That's super interesting because the, the call for so long was for feed-in tariffs. Like, we were the outlier compared to other o- OECD countries, right? But actually, you, what you're describing is uh, a much more interesting kind of mechanism where you're providing um, grid capacity in a way that actually Transpower wants. A, a, you know, a, yeah, exactly. Do, do the Gen Taylors sort of resent you still? No, I mean, we think of ourselves as complementary because um, if you think about that $40 billion of investment that's required, um, we can help defer that. So down in Wanaka, we've partnered with Aurora and we've deferred them having to put in some new poles and wires, which yeah. have you know, lowered the costs of energy for the local community yeah. because we've been deploying batteries. So we think of ourselves as a partner. We don't think of ourselves as a, as a competitor. Um, if you think about the next sort of 10 years, um, we've got to solve what's called the energy trilemma. So we've got to decarbonise uh, our energy system. Um, we've got to make sure that we're keeping bills you know, where they need to be and we're not um, exploiting people. Uh, and we've got to make sure that it's resilient too. So solving those three things actually requires us to change the way we've done things in the past. So we can't just build these massive centralised assets and not change the way we consume energy. So there's definitely a place for centralised assets, but also decentralised assets too. And I think one of the key things that I think the industry needs to uh, really remind ourselves is we are a consumer-led industry. So in the past, sort of my view has been often we build these big centralised assets and sort of people are consuming what's built centrally. Now what you're seeing is sort of prosumers, people that are generating the energy at their house. They have more control over when they consume it. They want to be more in control uh, about how they consume electricity Mm. and how they get rewarded for changing their consumption. So things like time of use uh, tariffs for your lines charges are really important because you can send the right signals. Mm. You You can say, hey, Vincent, if you get home at 6 p.m. and you charge your EV along with Matt, we're going to charge you, say, 10 cents kilowatt hour for the lines charges. If you use a smart charger and you do it at one in the morning, we'll charge you two cents. Hmm. So therefore, you don't need to go and build a whole lot more infrastructure to accommodate two hours of charging between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. Hmm. if we use energy smartly. So we can actually avoid or defer so much of that investment by using energy in a, in a smart way. And that's what yeah. Solar Zero is all about. We're about... Um, you know, introducing smart ways of consuming electricity. Yeah. I'm curious about the history of the company because it started out really as a tech company with Andy Booth was this uh, University of Canterbury engineer, I think. And So we had Professor Arthur Williamson. That's right. Uh, yep. He uh, worked in the solar hot water space yeah. and he created a business called Thermocell. And uh, Arthur, I think, is now in his, uh, in his late 90s. 
Um, and so he was sort of the, the godfather of that in New Zealand. And then Andy Booth uh, was uh, an ex-Greenpeace uh, um, person, and Andy was quite high up in Greenpeace. Actually, I've seen some amazing photos of him uh, plugging oil, oil and all that sort of stuff other than the Northern Hemisphere. And he acquired uh, Solar City as it was, or Thermosel mm-hmm. as it was in 2008, That's 9. Right. yes. And then pivoted the business away from solar hot water into solar. And so the business in two, between 2009 and 14 uh, did PV uh, up in the Pacific Islands, so a number of uh, larger utility systems up there, and also a bit of residential, a bit of commercial. Um, but the thing that they were finding time and time again was that solar was really expensive. Mm. So uh, Andy is a real entrepreneur, he's a real innovator, and so he developed the solar as a service product uh, in about 2015, where effectively um, we just enable people to put solar panels on their home and have a subscription for it. And then in about 2018, we added the battery into the product for the very, very first time uh, and enabled a customer to effectively uh, have 100% of their power bill with us with that battery backup. Right. And it's the battery that seems to me, that and the smart meter seems to be the transformational piece that allows you to have this dynamic relationship with the grid. Is that right? Yeah, I think that what we do with the battery uh, enables us, we we create what we call a bi-directional platform. So one half of what we use the battery for is to sort of shift the customer's demand. And we have a team of uh, data scientists and engineers that are using uh, AI to develop um, the battery charging and discharging cycles to reflect the consumption of the homeowner. So if you go and buy a standard battery, they'll have one or two, three maybe modules and you'll just pick one. Whereas we've got our guys constantly reviewing how you use energy and updating the way the battery works to reflect the way you consume. Mm. So it's a very personalised, customer-centric model. Um, and it comes back to what I was saying before about the energy, in- energy industry needs to move towards that customer-centric model. Yeah, so. And then to answer your question, the other part of what we do with the battery, you're right, is that we use the battery to participate as a VPP in those other markets mm. because that's what uh, underpins the economic value of the battery. At the moment, if you just buy a battery uh, and you don't participate in the VPP, you're really only getting the resilience benefits from it. You're not deriving any economic utility from it. Have you found that as people get more engaged with uh, technology, uh, that they also start to take ownership of their management of energy? Like it's the, the I'm assuming that these the data that you're presented with as a customer, it's, it's pretty dynamic, isn't it? So you can actually see by the minute what you're using. Does that change consumer behaviour? It's a really, really uh, pertinent question. So at the moment, our customers uh, have good visibility over what they're consuming in real time. That team of data scientists are actually working on uh, an app which we're releasing in March next year to provide a series of insights to compare your consumption versus other three or four bedroom homes to provide energy tips and not just sort of ones like <clears throat> don't preheat your oven or turn a few lights off, but some, some ones that... your curtains. Yeah. <laughs> just some, you know, some ones that actually are insight driven as well. Yeah. Um, and then we're obviously on this massive pathway to zero uh, in, in New Zealand. So yeah. we have a whole lot of people that are on old uh, electric uh, hot water cylinders you know, the hot water cylinder, the hot water heat pumps now in the market can reduce your consumption by about 75 to 80%. So 
So a lot of what we are starting to do with that data is to understand the consumption profile of our customers to then help work alongside them as a sort of a trusted partner to get to that sort of zero, uh, that zero footprint, if you like. And so, you know, there'll be customers that are expanding their energy use because they're adopting EVs and other things. But there'll also be customers that are wanting to, you know, reduce their consumption and hot water heat pumps, uh, EV smart chargers, um, you know, smart appliances. You know, that's the way forward. So that data helps us provide that insight to our customers. I find with, uh, and I just know in myself, that there are certain kind of moments where your behaviour starts changing. You buy fair trade coffee and then you start saying, well, what about the fair trade sugar? Mm. What about... The, the milk that goes in this, or maybe I should think about my, tre- my tea. Mm. Uh, having uh, a, <clears throat> a friend of ours, he's been on the show actually, Nick Worthington, is, um, he is Synergize. Yeah. Um, and his little app, uh, it's just so much fun to watch, you know, because he's got this sort of sun yeah. uh, dial, you know, that goes up and down according. It's, it's actually quite compelling, you know, to see... Yeah. How much how much energy am I making, you know, and how much money am I making right now? Yeah, I think um, what we find is in the first three to six months, customers are really engaged in that. Um, but what we need to do is uh, reward customers and keep them engaged and get them more engaged in it. So overseas, you've seen customers uh, being engaged in the UK to participate in demand flexibility trials. So they've been paid, you know, one to two pounds to, you know, reduce their electricity consumption at peak periods. Oh, yeah. So we'd love to see that sort of thing happen in, in New Zealand mm. um, because it is fully em- embracing, you know, customers uh, in, that, in that process. Yeah. And so, you know, at the moment, most people who are buying a solar and battery system will get a pretty sort of static, generic view of their consumption and, you know, generation and, and that sort of stuff. But it's the insights which will say, you know, hey, Vincent, you know, we have, you know, 12,000 customers, let's say 6,000 in four-bedroom homes of a similar size. You know, we're noticing at this time of day you're doing A, B, and C. You know, should we maybe change the way we're configuring your hot water cylinder mm. or other other bits and pieces like that? Yeah. And, you know, it will help our customers save money. And that's the first thing that, you know, Eker and others point to is, it's reducing our consumption. We don't have to build our way out of this. Yes. Yeah, Andrew Eagles, uh, he's from um, the Green Building Council, was on the show a while ago, and he just talked about how the savings actually could really kick in before we need to start building things like Onslow and you know, sort of mega infrastructure. Actually, some changes in behaviour might deal to you know, some of the, um, particularly around the peaks. I'm curious about the impact that you might have on gas. So gas heating gas stoves um, still play a huge role in New Zealand households. Has any of your investments had an impact on transitioning away from gas? Well, what you're seeing in Australia is in Victoria, you can no longer uh, build new houses that are supplied by gas Mm -hmm. from 2024. So obviously in New Zealand, uh, there has been sort of curtailment of uh, offshore gas exploration and what have you, but we're still sort of yet to see that sort of fully creep its way into consumer habits and things. So Mm -hmm. we still have a a number of households that have got, you know, uh, gas, hot water and that sort of stuff. But what we're trying to do is build an ecosystem that allows customers to use hot water heat pumps and other things 
to you know to get off gas because we are seeing price increases for gas mm-hmm. of 30 to 35% mm. over the last sort of 6 to 12 months. So your typical retail customer has observed uh, electricity price increases of uh, around sort of 8 to 10%, depending on where you are in the country. But some gas customers are really feeling the pinch because they've you know, had price increases of 30%. Yeah. So we're starting to sort of see people think about that. And we are working closely with Panasonic at the moment on a hot water heat pump solution that we're going to hope to start trialling in the back end of next year. I think that would be an absolute killer, actually. And that and, um, um, you know, heating systems, you know, um, central... Central um, central heating and you know, underfloor heating and stuff, which is still sort of majority is gas fired, I would say. Um, yeah, we have a high penetration of heat pumps in New Zealand. I mean, compared to the UK, they've got to deploy something like six hundred thousand heat pumps a month okay. to try and get off gas over there, because um, you know their their households are basically on those sort of, you know those gas boilers for heating, cooling, mm-hmm. hot water, the whole works. Mm. So we actually do have quite a high proliferation uh, of heat pumps in New Zealand, okay. but they're not smart heat pumps. And so that's the thing that we can add value uh, is, you know, and we've done that um, recently again with uh, the guys at Panasonic has integrated their heat pump uh, into uh, our control environment. Um, and so, you know, again, next year we're looking at deploying that service and customers can elect to um, enable us to control the heat pumps within certain parameters um, to reduce their energy footprint and reduce their energy bills if they want. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your role. So you were CFO, I think, prior to becoming CEO, and you've had a really interesting career, as you say, with um, Oceania. Um, and then, uh, you know, looking at your, your CV, it didn't look like a, a kind of sustainability journey so much as a, a, just a really good financial career. Has there been a moment for you where sustainability has become important? Or did, it, did it happen when you joined Solar Zero? Or was, yeah, tell me about you, where you're at. Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, it happened uh, down in Millbrook, and I was sitting outside uh, the clubhouse down there, and I had been at Oceania for the best part of 10 years, and I loved it. Uh, you know, working for the elderly who are... Um, you know, the people that have given us everything we've got in New Zealand is a real privilege. And I do think that sector of society is very, very undervalued. Um, and it has been great to see you know, some of the changes there recently, but there's a long way to go, mm-hmm. I think, to look after the industry. But that's a separate topic for another day. Yeah. But I was sitting there and um, I was really looking for something which uh, I could apply my finance skills to, but also something that had a real purpose behind it. Mm. And, you know, Solar Zero, our purpose is, uh, is electrifying. Our, our staff are so pumped up to come to work each day. Um, some people are interested in the technology. Others are very, very interested in the sort of humanitarian side of it. Others, um, you know, are very, very environmentally driven. For me, it was this intersection between really, really smart uh, finance and business models as well as the sustainability side. Mm. You know, Solar Zero, we deploy about $10 million of capital every month to um, fund our 400 installations. So our financing and business models are unique. So we worked with NZ Green Investment Finance uh, just recently, actually, to develop a New Zealand first uh, sort of financing mechanism to fund our our solar contracts over a 20-year period. 
Um, that's never been done before. Yeah. And so it was that sort of innovation which really attracted me yeah, into sure. the industry. Yeah. And that's just been compounded by the fact that we have such a difference. We make such a difference. Every solar system we deploy is equivalent to planting 15 trees. We're saving Kiwis money. So it's just this unique win-win situation mm. where, you know, you're not just, you know, profiting you know, from it. You're also actually, you know, improving sustainability outcomes, people outcomes. Um, we think also making a difference from sort of an energy hardship point of view as well. You know, we are really focused, and I said it earlier, on uh, democratising access to solar and there are certain sectors of New Zealand which have been left behind. Um, and that's one of the sort of key passions for me over the next 36 months is to figure out how we can get solar systems and battery systems on more rental properties. I haven't figured out how to do that yet, but we need to work on that because it's really important that no one gets left behind in the energy transition. Mm. It's massive alignment between your values and your skill set. Not many people get that opportunity. Yeah, no, it's just one of those things. It's been a grind, honestly. Like, uh, Andy is probably the hardest working person I've ever worked alongside, <laughs> and that includes people at Macquarie Bank and others. So it has been an absolute grind. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears literally have gone into it. Um, you know, but there's a lot of very dedicated, proud people, humble people at Solar Zero that are trying to make a difference. Uh, and I love getting out once a month and doing our customer visits and things and just understanding, like, why people are choosing to go with us. Yeah. And, you know, we have customers that quite frankly right now are doing it to save money. You know, their priority right now is, you know, reducing their cost of living. Yeah. And it just has the added benefit of saving the environment. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we have other customers. But whatever it takes, right? Well, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you've got, if you've got a great product that is contributing to climate and sustainability and, um, and the economics don't work, you know, what use is that? Exactly. And that comes back to that energy trolley and the point before. You know, we can't just build, you know, billions and billions of dollars of infrastructure and then expect Kiwis to pay for it yeah. and increase their power bills by, you know, 10, 30, 40, 50%. Yeah. And that's why our model actually enables us to electrify the economy but also save money. And mm. that's what I love about it. Yeah. Um, just the last question around that um, green investment finance. So it seemed to me, from what I could understand, that you were just one of a number of investments they've made under that mechanism. Is, is it is it an equity play, or is it? A, is, I thought it looked like some sort of bond or uh, or alliance. Yeah. Of some sort. So we worked with uh, Jason and Warren at NZ Gift for about eighteen months, actually, to pull it together. He was on the show. By I the know. Way, I heard just the podcast advertisement. Yeah. For, that was a really interesting. Uh, I loved your questions at the end. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. No. And and, and I, I, personally, I think that. NZ Gift has a massive role to play. They have um, backed us and particularly backed the battery revenues where other debt investors maybe haven't seen that because it's been a little bit early stage. Yeah. So I think there's a massive role for NZ Gift and other uh, sort of investors like them in the market. Um, we uh, have a facility of about $225 million that we have with uh, NZ Gift and uh, two offshore investors. Um, and they supply so senior debt to us. Right. Um, and then separately from that, NZ GIF also have a mezzanine facility, and that funds um, some of the battery-related revenue, which traditional senior debt investors, it's a bit early stage for them. So they're more sort of you know, used to investing in um, you know, 
recurring revenue uh, customer contract backed revenue or project finance backed PPAs and things. Yeah. So the deal we did with NZ GIF was uh, we were and still are, as far as I'm aware, the first participant or recipient of that. Uh, and we worked with them to develop a structure that enabled them to raise overseas capital and deploy it into solar-backed assets. Yeah. And so that's about yeah, 220 odd million is what we've got uh, in terms of senior debt at the moment. Yeah. And then NZGIF have also uh, lent to us on commercial terms a sort of a mezzanine facility as well. Yeah. So they've been massive supporters and they're very, very innovative and I think they've got a role to play moving forward. Awesome. I mean, those little interventions quite transformational, right? Because there's a real market failure with getting these big capital improvements over the line that don't fit a traditional structure. Yeah. I mean, I spend a lot of time obviously working as a sort of a CFO in other um, sectors too, and most senior banks there in uh, debt lending horizon sort of five, ten years maximum. Okay. And yet we've got, you know, 20-year-plus contracts with our customers. Yes. Um, locked in, guaranteed. So from a bankability point of view, they're highly bankable. And so what we did with NZGIF was to identify investors, you know, insurance uh, companies, uh, pension funds, that sort of thing, mm. with long investment horizons mm. who may be more naturally suited to, you know, funding 20-year receivables. Yeah. And so our view is then so senior debt investors uh, sort of help ramp us up over sort of three to five years. Yeah. And then we do a bond issue or we do a debt issue to those people with sort of longer term horizons. Yeah. And so, you know, my dream would be that we have the likes of, you know, ACC, New Zealand Superannuation, other KiwiSaver um, providers you know, investing in those sort of senior debt products, not just for us, but for the wider industry well, too. Well, actually, uh, you know, one of my clients is um, a community housing provider, Court, um, their Community of Refuge Trust, and they've done a deal with ACC actually to um, – um, on that kind of basis, actually, to, to fund – 100 houses, so it was a really, I think it was like a $50 million commitment. But it's it's because their horizons are so long and they can see that this you know, incredible um, balance sheet that they're creating in partnership with court. And those kind of finance innovations are what's required. Yeah, that's right. I think in many ways um, the innovation on the financial side unlocks you know, the business model. Mm. If we didn't have that financial innovation, then we would just be selling probably a fifth of the number of systems yeah, to the rich end of town yeah. and not having the impact on the environment and the lives of people that we are having now. Um, all right, well, let's wrap it up. Tell me about the future. So um, we've got this $40 billion gap. Is that what you said? Yep. Till when? 2030. 2030, yeah. Six so, years time. Yeah, so... Uh, BCG released a report last year called uh, Electrify New Zealand, or The Future's Electric, that's right. That's what it's called. It's a great report. It's a really, really good read. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite long, so just read the exact sum. Yeah. But in short, yeah, $40 billion. And ironically, about half of that uh, is in the transmission and distribution space. Right. And Pipes. Yeah, Pipes or lines. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing is a lot of people are focused on we need to build more generation, but that's only about 10 of the 40. That's because that's the cool end, you know, like yeah. it's dams and it's plants and um, nobody wants to build wires. It's boring. Yeah. But the thing is that poles and wires make up 40% of a customer's bill and they're the thing that you know underpins yeah. the resilience. Yeah, sure. So 
it was interesting observing in the recent sort of election that a lot of the focus and conversation was about generation, <clears throat> but more of the conversation, in my opinion, needs to be about what we're doing in the transmission and distribution side, yeah. because that is what's going to underpin the resilience. That's what's going to underpin the, the costs for, for Kiwis. Yeah. And that's where sort of smart models like ourselves, non-network solutions, mm -hmm. batteries, mm -hmm. we can make a real difference. Yeah, interesting. And for Solar Zero, what does that kind of and I take us to 2030. What does it look like, you hope? Uh, our vision is to have 100,000 customers by 2030. Uh, we want to take our model uh, offshore. We see massive potential for what we do in, in other markets. Right. Um, yeah, so those are probably the, the big two. That'll do. Yeah, yeah. strap in. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a tenfold growth. Did you say about 12,000 at the moment? Yep. Yeah. So over six years, I think sounds pretty possible. I and mean, if you were doing this in 2015, and you, ima you imagine the curve is kind of exponential in terms of growth. It's not going to be a linear. There's yeah. a whole thing of like, oh, you know, Fred next door has got it, so I'm going to get it. That that network effect would start to kick Yeah, no, you it. see that. I mean, we're doing 400 installations a month now, and then this time last year we were doing 300, and then the year before that we were doing about 200. Yeah, right. And then 35% of our new customers come by way of referrals. So that's just word of mouth, customers, as you say, yeah, I've got it on my house, I have Fred over for a barbecue, oh, what's that on your roof, Matt? Get my app out, you know, demonstrate that I'm saving money and what have you, and then, oh, that sounds pretty good. Mm. So yeah, it's great. So 35% of our customers are coming in through their friends and family yeah. uh, and through word of mouth. So long may that last. Yeah, good one. Thanks for coming on the show, Matt, and, um, you know, good luck with uh, the future. I think what you're doing is really cool. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. If you like the show, please rate us as it helps others to find us. Ka kiti anō.